Hello and welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gosowski here, of course, with my favorite critic and co-host, Courtney Small. Hello. How are you today? Good. I'm very excited to be starting our Hot Ducks 2019 coverage this week. And we've got some highlights that we're both very excited about. So let's just dive right in. Yeah, now we should let listeners know that the festival runs from April 25th to May 5th. And you can go to hotdocs.ca to see a list of all the films that are there. There's a lot of good stuff. Good point. Okay, very good. <laughs> yeah, usually usually a good place to start is right there. I'm sorry, I was so excited. I just want to talk movies. <laughs> okay, we're going to start with a film from a name, uh, a filmmaker. She, you might know her name, Kim Longinato, especially because uh, Hot Dogs did a spotlight on her recently. Uh, I'm not going to try and remember when because that it's not coming off the top of my head, but uh, anyway, her latest film. She she's like a, a revolutionary uh, fi- women kind of fil- woman and filmmaker uh, who usually spotlights women and women's issues in her film. And this time, she's done a really interesting um, combination of a focus on a woman and how her career inter- intersects with something a lot larger, and how she basically influenced how people in Italy at least saw anyone who's paying attention to her photography could see what was going on with the mafia in Italy. So I'll stop being vague and I'll get right into the nitty gritty. It's called Shooting the Mafia. And so it's a portrait of Letizia Battaglia. She was a, is a photojournalist who took who was stationed like, stationed and lived in Palermo, which is the area where the Cosa Nostra, the mafia, was uh, quite prevalent. And the story, the, the film, the story of the film is that it's a portrait of her and her life as a woman who, you know, during that time, during that era when she was growing up, she faced a lot of oppression under the patriarchy, starting with her father, who she had to run away from. I mean, but how do you run away from your father in, in 1960s Italy? You get married to a man who tells you what you can and cannot do. So eventually, in her you know middle age, she, uh, she gets away from it all and has her own career as a photojournalist and has a very storied life as a woman who captivates a lot of men. So it's, I, I really liked the way that the two aspects, the two, everything c- came together. I think Kim Longinato does a really good job of weaving all of that together. You know, you could say that there's not enough talk about uh, the photographs and the, and the mafia, but I think she, she really sets it up that this is one individual's point of view and brings up issues, I think, that are greater than just photographing the mafia. I mean, these these photographs are so striking and so powerful. And, you know, be be aware that they're, you know, graphic because she was right there when things happened. Um, But it brings up, she starts to bring up, uh, Letizia herself starts to, in her story, in her telling, in her, this intimate sort of interview style of talking, um, she starts to bring up issues that are personal, but also personal for a photojournalist, like when to take a photo, 
um, and the whole issue of responsibility. You know, she talk, she, as she's going through um, sort of in a narrative sequence uh, of life, she goes to certain events and certain photos and remembers the circumstances of that photo, of that, that shoot, you know, shooting or bombing or whatever, and then how she felt and gets to a point where she's saying, I just couldn't shoot that. Uh, so there's a lot of news, other news footage and stuff woven in as well, which I also give Kim uh, Longinotto a lot of credit for. It's like she weaves in a lot of different sources of footage and material. But when Leticia is talking about, you know, this certain photograph, and it gets very personal, and she says, I couldn't take the photograph, and yet later in the film, she reflects on her role as a photojournalist and her her, her responsibilities that, you know, there's sometimes a, a conflict in that, and it, it's not resolvable. That's the, the great ir- irony of the film is the, the personal and the, you know, the greater, the beyond personal, which I can't think of the term right now. <laughs> no, no, I, I completely follow you. And it's it, it's interesting because watching this film, I felt like there was two distinct movies that could have easily been made. It could have, you could have had one strictly about her as a female who discovers her love for photography at a later age, but just about her independence from the um, oppressive society especially the patriarchy that is holding her down every step of the way. Like she overcomes mental illness, abusive husband, mm-hmm. what have you. And then you've got this really, what I found really engrossing story of the mafia um, and how this film intertwines the two. I thought was really well done. I think in another director's hands, it would have been a mess. Yeah. But I was um, captivated by her life and, you know, they bring in a lot of her, past lovers of various ages to to talk about their encounters and just how how she is as a you know independent woman and and that was really fascinating and then when you see the horrors of what the mafia did in Italy from like the 70s up to let's say the early 90s it's fascinating as well and even for a photographer who has captured countless horrific images there are still certain moments in time that she's still shaken by Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain levels of corruption that is not even captured in a photo, but certain people who have who were killed by the mafia that to this day you see that she's still very shaken and talking about it. There's moments where she contemplates whether or not she could even go on in that profession and eventually with politics, like dealing with the magnitude of of all this horror and fear, fear mongering that's going on. And it's a, it's a really captivating film that. I think is both chilling, but also empowering. And I know that makes sound a little weird, but her personal story, I think is empowering. And just that at age 80, she is still defiant yes. <laughs> to the, the very end. And then this, the stuff with the mafia is chilling, especially when you can see how deep the level of corruption went and how certain mob bosses from various families could have potentially been, arrested a lot sooner than they are right yeah and, yeah and where certain people are, it's it's a really it's a really fascinating film yeah that's like news footage mm-hmm. that that gets interwoven into the story of the photographs the photographs and then her story yeah um but i i think that 
uh, having this kind of point of view of that historical time period and what was going on in terms of the mafia. There have been various depictions of the mafia. There have been various reports. We can watch a straight-on news report and have one reaction. But having, I really appreciated having my point of view this time, this time, filtered through the experiences of someone who was there. Mm-hmm. She had a job, and so it's filtered through that job, but she also is a human being. She's a defiant, lovable human being. You know, I quickly, quickly fell in love with that that person on, on screen, right? But I think it adds to my sense of the horror of it. Yep. I think, you know, if it was just uh, about the mafia at that time, it, I wouldn't have had as deep an, uh, a reaction. So No, I agree. Okay. So um, so definitely uh, look for tickets now for shooting the mafia. Kim Longinato definitely want to watch. Now. I can jump in and talk about uh, Midnight Travelers because I, I don't think you've seen that one yet. No, I haven't. So please. Yeah, and I want to hear I about think this. I it's, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting segue because in the last film you were talking about how um, – the photographer struggled with what to capture and what not to. And that same type of theme happens in Midnight Travelers. And it's a film by um, Hassan Fazili. And he is a filmmaker who found himself basically on the Taliban's, um, I guess, wanted list. Uh, He made a film about a Taliban leader, a former Taliban leader who I guess had found what he was doing was wrong and kind of changed his way of life and whatnot. And I guess when leadership changed, they decided that that type of movie is bad for business and they put a hit out for him. So he had to leave with his wife, who's also a filmmaker and two young girls. And they fled to um, a nearby town and was there for, I think about 14 months waiting for their asylum requests to come through. And it never did. And they ended up having to, flee from Afghanistan and make the trek to Europe. So what he did is he and his wife and I guess the daughter used their cell phones and filmed their journey. So the entire film is shot on three cell phones and you get a first-hand experience of the refugee, the migrant crisis. So you see them as they're going to um, various camps and some camps are over overfilled so they're like sleeping in the hallways there's some places where there there is no place to stay so they're sleeping out outdoors in the winter or they're sleeping in a burnt down building uh you see where they have to go through the smuggler route and how dangerous that is for a lot of migrants you know there's one point where they can't they're not sure whether or not to trust the smugglers because the smugglers keep demanding more money and all this that they encounter is just to get to a place where their asylum claim can be heard you know and it's a really fascinating film because as harrowing as that sounds Fazili puts in a lot of moments of joy when you see just the family together you know there's a moment where the daughter gets to play in the water for a little bit which is something she hasn't done in probably a hundred and some odd days you know, just for a brief moment, she gets to be a kid. He and his wife, uh, at one particular location, have a discussion about whether husband should be allowed to flirt. <laughs> and so, you know, there's just like there's a lot of human moments which makes the Howring journey, um, I guess, easier to to digest. 
because it's not just all doom and gloom, but when the stuff hits, like when they, they hit Europe and you think, okay, there's, they've gone through so much hardship and then they encounter nationalist people who, and some of them are police as well, who have political agendas and are abusing them physically, you know, throwing rocks at them, what have you. We don't want you in our country. The type of, propaganda that is being discussed on a global level right now and after you've seen them what they went through just to get to that point and then to encounter that type of hatred just for wanting to live survive try and make a better life it it makes you look at the whole migrant crisis in a whole new light like regardless of what side of the issue you're on Mm -hmm. it is tough not to watch this film and not think of like the human element to it because i think often that's what gets lost in a lot of the debates and, and the headlines, rhetoric, and the headlines, yeah, whereas, the rhetoric you were going to yeah, say, this yeah, one yeah. here is all about the human experience, and you know, there's moments of joy, there's moments of hardship, but it's life, and it's it's a life that they're sick of living, but they have to in order to survive, mm-hmm. right? And it's a really fascinating film. Um, Sounds very important as well, especially yeah. with so many issues with migrants right now strangers what the u.s is doing Mm -hmm. it's it's one of the few films that has really made me look at that whole situation in a different light and we've seen a lot of films about the taliban and Mm -hmm. um, and we're both sympathetic i mean we know that that there are human beings involved yeah but to actually see like the day-to-day is something that we don't necessarily consider that often yeah and this one it really puts it out there so i think it's a wonderful film I, i believe it won one award at Sundance. Mm-hmm. I know they have a lot of documentary awards, but it, it, yeah, did, it did win. <laughs> it won some award at Sundance. So it's still, nev- nevertheless, d- despite having many mm-hmm. awards at Sundance, it's still meaningful when yes. <laughs> when a film wins, right? And uh, I just want to um, what you said, you know, about how this humanizes this larger issue that we sometimes forget involves human beings or somehow that detail gets lost and people mm-hmm. don't really tune in uh, to to that. Um, I want to talk about a film called Killing Patient Zero by Laurie Lind, Canadian local hero. Uh, Laurie Lind's been around for, you know, a few years. He's a veteran. And uh, this film uh, just knocked my socks off. And basically it's a film about... Uh, the AIDS crisis and how everything came down to in the media in you know in the way that people viewed it um it came down to blaming someone that was called patient zero that you know basically the whole thing could be traced to this this man patient zero and even that term takes away his humanity right traced to patient zero blamed on patient zero he was the great scapegoat the AIDS crisis and what the film does on one level is it shows you the fallacy of that just calling him patient zero how ridiculous that is when you consider how it happened and I will tell you how it happened in a second Um, but also it humanizes the person patient zero is a man named Gaetan Dugar and this film goes and talks to his friends and his co-workers, and they reminisce lovingly about this, this beautiful man who loved life, didn't want to harm a fly. He just wanted to enjoy life to its fullest. Um, 
And the film, you know, in terms of interweaving, like I guess I'm talking a lot about interweaving because that's that's really a skill that a, a lot of filmmakers are utilizing, and that's that's what's making a lot of these documentaries like soar above others, is the the interweaving of this, the personal stories, um, the reflections, the recollections of you know how beautiful and funny and wonderful he was, um, with people who sort of, you know, knew him, knew the issues, like people involved in AIDS organizations, and then it slowly moves to include all of that. See, the, it's the, the progression of the film is, is those stories, but eventually the medical establishment starts getting included in this, this pattern of how this film is unfolding until you get, you know, well, you get the, the fuller picture, and I'm, you know, you have to see the film to see that. Mm-hmm. But there's one very, very telling detail which everybody's talking about, which is that even the term patient zero is a misnomer. It's it's a typo. It's a typo. This whole thing can be can come down to a typo. The way that because it's really great in explaining how this how this happened, how the demonizing of this individual happened, and how it's all tied up with the demonizing of the gay community how when you place uh, morality on top of a disease things get twisted mm-hmm. things get terribly terribly twisted and that is a very important part of what happened is you know the anti-gay sentiment and and how that twisted everything with the with their crazy sense of morality um and I should also mention that, that uh, two of the people I interviewed are also B. Ruby Rich and, and Fran Leibowitz, who, who add this other kind of perspective on mm-hmm. just the community, everything. Um, but this, this moralizing, it, it shows you just how twisted it all became. And, and what happened was that when researchers started realizing that something was wrong, they started to figure out a scientific way to trace what happened with who, to see if there was a pattern, to see if they could figure out what this was, because uh, for the longest time they didn't know what it was. And then, sure enough, they uh, numbered patients that they were studying. So Gaetan Dugas was patient 57. In, in, uh, in another sense, they, they, they categorized him as patient O. L-M-N-O-P-Q-R, mm-hmm. right? He was O. And someone once switched that to zero. They read it as zero. And so zero means, you know, the, the point where it begins, right? The, the place where everything meets. And Ground zero, right? Yeah, and especially since he was, um, it was at the time when he was really letting loose and just kind of becoming one with his sexuality, which is not a crime whatsoever. But a lot of the people that they would talk to all kind of went back to, well, it was this French... Uh, flight attendant that we met at a party and this and that and you know it, it inadvertently set off this narrative that just didn't um, really apply and no, shouldn't because, have applied no and also because once it's laid out for you once you see it and it's laid out for you scientifically you see that he's not the only source of a bunch of partners that he slept with mm-hmm. every like there's a whole bunch of these clusters and they called it like a cluster theory right and it there's a whole bunch of clusters, and in fact, other people started other bigger clusters. 
So this typo made him patient zero, but instead it probably prevented them from looking further. Yep. Regardless of that, you know, we know that they, eventually there came time. But it may, maybe they could have found a way to deal with it and, and keep it in check, keep the disease in check sooner. Or yeah, but I think one of the g- good things that this film does is it also shows the inherent bias of the time. Yeah. Because at one point, someone, um, one of the interviewees talks about him hearing about the gay cancer. Because that's what people were, were calling it. And they were saying that when they figured out that a certain amount of people had had it and they actually f- bothered to start looking into what was causing these illnesses. By then, the amount of um, people that were inflicted with the disease had already like quadrupled, you yeah. know, because, again, they, they brushed it off. Because it was happening to the gay community, it wasn't deemed an important issue. But if this was something that was happening to the straight community, there would have been tests, there would have been reports, you you know, know you you only had one journalist that had to kind of lead the charge and say, hey, no, this is actually an important story that we need to look into and document. So it's, it's fascinating. And this is an, in the age, in the eighties, like well before social media and Twitter, like, you know, if you think of the kind of fear mongering that we have now, imagine if social media was around back then, it would have been even worse. Would have been catastrophic. But the the other good thing about the film is, is that it's weaving his story his story mm-hmm. and the story of the spreading of AIDS. But what it does is it gives you like this background, this background that that sort of helps you understand if you don't already, that there's a history of oppression in the gay community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with an event like Stonewall, the, the, the riots at Stonewall in New York City, where everybody just got fed up with the police constantly raiding the mm-hmm. place. Um, that that was the last straw. Stonewall was the last straw, and that's why you know this riot. But it, it it's not as simple as that. And the film makes it you know clear. It it does it better than I'm doing it right now because you have to see the film, not listen to me. Just <laughs> you know, it does a, it does a wonderful job of of, of changing the the narrative. So yes, the, the the person that had been for years vilified, they're like, no, he he wasn't a villain. He actually sh- you should be looking at him as a hero, and here is why. And I think it does a good job of outlining all the reasons why we need to as a society need to change our thoughts about patient zero mm-hmm. and that that whole era because mm-hmm. that that narrative the other part of that narrative narrative of the of the oppression helps you understand how people then eventually wanted to break free and wanted to be liberated and tried they tried no they did <sighs> it's ah uh, drives me crazy mm-hmm. okay so that i mean the the situation drives me crazy. Uh, the film was is uh, just it's just you know in terms of getting your synapses firing, uh, getting thoughts and feelings at all. It's it's got all of it. It's got so much going going for it. Um, we should stop talking about it and just tell you go get tickets. <laughs> Killing Patient Zero. Congratulations, Lori Lind. Shall we? Sure. You want to do a recorder? Yes. Yeah, so recorder? another film that I really, really, we both really, really liked, it sounds like, um, is a film that also, you know, what, what strikes me is the, the, the format, the, the sort of stylistic, that it, these documentaries are more complicated than they appear at the surface when mm-hmm. you see the way that they're put together, the skill in which they're put together um, and the kind of 
chances and choices that the filmmakers are taking that pay off in terms of um, the way that that they choose to make the film, right? Yeah, and this one um, by by Matt Wolf is no no exception to that. And it's funny because we've been talking a lot about perceptions and how things were being presented, and this film is all about media and how media um, shapes the the way we consume and the way we think about certain ideals. And it's a film that, I guess, talks about the life of Marion Stokes, who is a TV producer, a very intelligent um, black woman that, I guess, fell in love with her TV show host of the show that she was producing, and he was a well, very before that, wealthy also, man. She wasn't just a, she wasn't just a producer. She was part of a like a grand. I think she was like a librarian too. Wasn't she, she was a librarian, yeah. but then you know she got involved in social issues. She be you know she became involved politically, mm-hmm. um, and then she became part of the show. And she was producer, but she also appeared on it. And it was this fascinating show that had different, very 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 different people from. Each one with a different point of view. Yeah. And she was, you know, in terms of her socialist leanings, she was that person who got to speak. And and I think it was that experience of throwing – everybody throwing all those ideas around that probably helped her, you know, because when you have debates, it's often good to help you – um, hone your ideas better of yes. what you believe in, right? And I think that it, helped. Yeah, help. and it was essentially it was like the the punditry format before it, yeah. it, it went off the rails like it is now. Like yeah. people actually <laughs> had interesting debates and discussions, and if they didn't agree, you could still call someone out on an issue that is false, thing, but do it in a way that makes them think about your point of view a lot yeah. more. And you know, this was at the dawn of the. I guess, 24-hour news station channel. So after she had married and, I guess, became a little wealthy, her eccentric side and her possessive side kind of closed her off to most of her family except for her husband. But one of the things that she found fascinating was the way that news um, stations, various news channels, were reporting the same event but differently. Yeah. And what was the, So she went on a mission to start recording news and then expand to other programs as well and literally she spent most of her days just recording you yeah, know and it, 700 VHS tapes of well, decades, it, yeah, three decades yeah, worth yeah. of news shows um, what have you and she was constantly analyzing and she felt the need to keep a record of all these things even though we always think oh the stations will have will keep a record of this and they, but they don't and her Obsession and her quirkiness is actually revolutionary now because those things are being digitized and it forces us to question in, in watching this film, how are we taking the news and who is governing what we consume? And it's, in, it's in fact, fascinating. Yeah, and in fact, how that is shaping, she started to realize that it was shaping more than just public opinion, that it was, you know... That there was an interaction with government and how mm-hmm. governments were perceived or how government, you know, we won't go into the, the details, but there was this sort of question in her mind about the government, how, how it shaped the way the news was told. Yep. And I think something that really struck, struck me was she, because I don't hear any, anyone talking about it now, and 
it struck me because when I saw live footage from September 11th, and I was captiva- so captivated that I stayed at my TV and mm-hmm. I was just frozen. I was frozen with shock. I later noticed that some of what I saw live never made it back. And then when I'm watching the Marion Stokes project, I'm thinking, she knew that. Yep. She had noticed that decades before. And that kept her going with her recording. Because not only do they, these stations don't have that footage decades later. They don't keep it. And nobody knew that at the time. Nobody thought about it. But also, she was afraid that it would disappear. And her, you know, I brought up her socialism theory, like her her beliefs, her socialist beliefs, because she really wanted to make sure that uh, truth, reality, realism, um, access to to that reality was always democratic that it was all people regular people you know had that access and and but you have to watch the film yeah it's uh, because it's there's so many yeah and, and the 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 style of the film interviewing so many various different people and in, interjecting so many different kinds of footage not only old footage, but new footage and talking about the, you know, the advent of the 24-hour news cycle. When, when you look at all that, you'll be absolutely shocked. And we couldn't even do it justice to try and describe how that. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because I've always, you know, my wife always complains because I say this all the time, but I've, I've always felt like there's no need for 24-hour news stations. And this film, I feel, is like <laughs> that vindication. But, absolutely. But yeah. especially thinking about it, a lot afterwards and you think of like how media is being consumed and which um, I guess wealthy individuals are controlling and buying up stations all across various countries it's I, I almost want to I wish that there was a sequel of this because she saw what was coming yeah well before any of us saw it and I you know it's it'd be wonderful if 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 it was feasible to hear her views on where it's gone you know like i've i was documenting all this i knew it was coming y'all thought i was crazy (laughs) but now now how are you doing (laughs) it's 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 and have her comment on what's going on right now yeah it's uh it's a wonderful film i i was really pleasantly surprised by it yeah i mean it's talking about a certain era you know decades ago Mm -hmm. but when you see it, you will see just how relevant, it, like absolutely necessary it is to mm-hmm. have a film like this right now. That's all we're going to say about that one. Yep. But, you, okay, I just want to like add one last film in. Sure. Because structurally, like, the theme of the day in my head <laughs> seems to be the structure of, of this, these documentary films and how people are co- combining so many different elements that would normally or often be separate, right? Um, that there's another film that I found really interesting structurally. I'd really like to hear people's reactions to it because okay. I'm not really sure how I felt about it. But I will tell you that I have a much greater interest, if not respect, for um, reenactments. Mm-hmm. Every documentary maybe has a tiny bit of reenactment here or there. You know, here, open that book and I'll shoot you opening that book, right? Because I liked it when you did that before. That, you know, little shot here and there, right? 
But in framing John DeLorean, the, there is a reenactment segment to the film. It's about John DeLorean, the the man who brought us the famous car. Yeah. And he was an auto executive. And so it, it sort of lets us into his world, into it gives us a portrait of him, how he was sort of a rebel pioneering, you know, how he stood out and eventually rebelled against the other car manufacturers. And, and you get to decide whether it's because of his great ego or because he was some sort of visionary in terms of what he wanted to bring to the people with his car, right? But so you've got all this like old footage, factual footage of him speaking, people talking about him, news footage, right? And here comes that word again, woven throughout, Mm -hmm. is this reenactment footage. Very self-reflexive, very self-aware, very meta kind of footage that is uh, Alec Baldwin, of all people, reenacting certain dramatic versions of scenes that would have happened around what the factual things are. Oh, interesting. Does that that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. (laughs) So I have always, anything that relies too much on reenactments and gets dramatic like that in a documentary film has just not been my cup of tea. You know, it's just not usually something I admire or like. But this one... Because it's so ref- self-reflexive, you see, you see John DeLorean in, in a news footage. You see Alec Baldwin acting something out, and you see Alec Baldwin in makeup afterwards, or about to do the next scene. Mm-hmm. You see him before he does the scene, talking about John DeLorean. He's analyzing John DeLorean f- or his motives, or you know, which is what an actor needs to do t- in order to portray that person. He needs to have an idea, a clear idea especially since he's portraying a real person. Yeah. And so those are insights that are added. Well, that sounds very fascinating. <laughs> it's it really, it's it's a wild film. Yeah, I'm going to have to add that to my hot dogs list. <laughs> check yes. that out. But tell me, because like I said, I have still have this, even after watching this, where I sort of went, oh, they know how to use reenactments. I still, there's this, I don't know, this, this purist in me that's going... I don't know what that was. You know, I don't know how to feel about this. See, and I'm all for reenactments. <laughs> doctors, like, I have no problems with it. But I'm all for experimentation. Mm-hmm. So to me, this is, you know, the, the the person who appreciates experimenting in any any form, especially like experimental film, right, mm-hmm. where they're, they'll play with any and all conventions and, and styles and that, is is intellectually appreciating this. And But I did get sucked in. In a few times. It was like, because it's it's kind of, it flows so well. So I actually, I do have to give credit to, now that I'm talking about it, I sort of have a better understanding of my reaction. Sometimes it happens, it just sticks with you. <laughs> so I have to give credit to directors Don Argot and Sheena Joyce. So, yes, please get tickets for that as well. I recommend it, Framing John DeLorean. So I think we've talked about a lot of, like, I think these guys are hot tickets, all these guys. Yeah, and we're going to have definitely a lot more next week. Oh, yeah. Because there's, there's a lot of films at this festival. <laughs> yeah, and we all, we all it's know. It's one of our favorites. So. How big, yeah. We all know how big 
this festival is, but there's always too many to choose from, right? Last year when, when at a certain point when people were saying, well, what should I see? What do you recommend? I had to pull out a notebook <laughs> because, you know, because I just couldn't remember everything. And it was like, well, you know, they've got a list of like 10. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's it for Frameline, right? Yep. Sounds good. Okay. See you next week, guys.